Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host and me and the Stand Up Tragedy team, we're up in Edinburgh at the moment doing a show at the Banshee Labyrinth as part of the Free Fringe every day until the 24th of August at 7.30. We've got a different lineup of performers every night, a different mix of tragedy. We've got comedians, spoken word artists, storytellers, musicians and more. Different combination every night so come along and tell your friends spread the tragedy let's get some word of mouth going for this show because really they've been some of the best shows that I've seen and I'm biased a little bit but I'm not completely biased because obviously I'm not all of the performers so I'm watching five brilliant performers every night before or four if I'm also performing that night we're here we are in Edinburgh we're putting out podcasts regularly but erratically and today's podcast is all about the tonal shifts that happen in our show. So we've got two extracts, and each extract has two different performers, and they followed each other on the night. Each extract will set itself up, so I will leave the waffling and give you the tragedy. So settle, so relax, and get ready for some stand-up tragedy. Our next performer is, uh, she's doing a show called Winky at 12.40 at the Underbelly Cowgate. Um, And her name is Lauren Stone! What what an incredible thing to have to follow. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's good. I was contemplating doing a poem about Viagra, but now I can't, obviously. Um, I has I don't know. Hello, team. Um, hello. <laughs> hey, oh, that's good. Um, have you ever been to so many funerals in a concentrated period of time that you start to plan your outfit for the next one? <laughs> um, I, I've done that. Uh, um, this isn't it this isn't my funeral outfit I just naturally wear a lot of black um, and I also am naturally sad looking apparently um, I don't know if anyone I've started introducing myself as just like hello nice to meet you no I, I'm okay I naturally look like this um, although a lot of I mean I've been flying I've been flying for a, for a show um, which is as much fun as you can imagine and uh um, actually, it's hideous, and <laughs> but it's it's made no much it's, it's made no no more fun and no less fun by the fact that people come up to me, um, other flyers, members of the public, complete strangers to me, come up to me and say, "You look sad." <laughs> um, they don't say, "Oh, hey, do you want to come and see this funny comedy show? It's a sexy comedy show." No, they go, "You look sad." Um, and I'm apparently naturally sad looking. And and and, and somebody came up to me. Maybe because I was sitting sadly on a bollard, eating an entire pack of donuts to myself. But a man, a man came up to me um, when I was flying, um, actually just hiding behind a bin, eating donuts. Um, and uh, and he was a sort of young, beardy man, and he's he was very softly spoken and very kind sounding. And he said to me. Uh, you look sad. And I said, that's a hell of a thing to come up to somebody you don't know and say. And he was like, well, you do. You look like you don't want to be here. And when he said, you look like you don't want to be here, it wasn't like, you look like you 
don't want to be here at the fringe. It was like, you look like you don't want to be here in the world. And, and I was a bit offended. Um, and, and I sort of said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I just naturally look like this. And then he was like, oh, I feel terrible. Because um, uh, if you just said that you were sad, then I could have tried to cheer you up. And I was like, are you going to try and cheer me up by trying to sell me a show, aren't you? Because he had these flyers kind of clutched to his chest. Uh, and, and, and he was obviously kind of withholding them because I was quite cross. Um, and I was like, no, 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 come on, just sell me the show. And he was like, it's not really a show. It's not really a show. Um, and, and he gave it to me and it just said, Christ the Redeemer on it. Um, <laughs> and I laughed a lot. And then I was like, ah, oh, thank you very much. Um, because I was thinking that like the show I'm in is actually about kind of um, like a, a woman who is very religious. Um, and it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's based on George Saunders' short story. And he's very critical of that kind of. Um, really, well, not critical, but he's kind of, you know, some aspects of religion are good and some aspects are bad, and it's really thoughtful. Um, but it just made me laugh a lot that this man was kind of handing me this propaganda. So I sort of said, oh, thank you very much. Um, and he said, oh, that got a smile out of you. And then he looked very unnerved, because um, I don't think that usually happens to him. I don't think people usually smile and thank him for the, for the religious propaganda. Um, and, and he said, you do you do know it's a religious tract, don't you? And I was like, yeah, thank, thanks very much. I'll see you later. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that's been happening to me a lot. A lot of people come up to me and say, you look, you look sad. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm not, actually. I'm, this is just it's quite a bad thing to admit at stand-up tragedy, isn't it? I should come up here and say, oh, I'm terribly sad. Oh, sad about all things. But actually, my life is going all right. Um, I ate an entire pack of donuts to myself recently. Um, uh, so, you know, um, and actually the thing that I'm going to tell you about that's sad, that is, it's just a small sad thing. Um, and uh, my mum fell down the stairs recently. Um, she's okay, <laughs> just, just to clarify. She, she only, it sounds very dramatic. It's like she only fell down two stairs and she was lying there, rolling around and... Um, and I looked at her and I went, ooh, fucking hell. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't really do anything for a bit and then I helped her. Um, but then uh, basically um, the, 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 the gist of what I'm trying to get at is she was on crutches for a while and, um, and it was just me and my mum in the house and she was on crutches and she couldn't really do anything and she looked a bit green. And, um, and it was just me and my mum and my dad was working and, uh, and I had to kind of stay at home and look after her. Um, and uh, we have a very... So my mum was just kind of sitting on the sofa looking green and couldn't move anywhere very fast. And we have a very elderly cat. He is 19 years old. And um, he's, he's completely deaf, as I, as I recently discovered, because my shouting at him just didn't work, or didn't work even more than it usually... You, just, just me opposite the cat going, I don't know what you want! And then, um, yeah, so he's, he's completely deaf. And he's also recently, to coincide with my mum being on crutches, gone completely blind. Um, so he's this very, if you can imagine, just a kind of big elderly ginger cat. He's very lovely. He's a very lovely cat. But he's, he's, he's very um, uh, limited in what he can do now. And um, it's mostly just going in circles, bumping into things. Um, but, I mean, basically what happened was that um, he started, in his blind, deaf confusion, um, having gone recently blind, just pissing on things in the house. Um, pissing on things that he shouldn't be pissing. I mean, he probably shouldn't be pissing in the house. But um, he, he's been doing that. And 
But my mum couldn't move fast enough to stop him, so I spent a whole week while my mum was on crutches um, uh, with all the doors in the house open so that whatever I was doing at any point in the house, I, my mum would shout from downstairs and she would go, Lauren, the cat is pissing! And I'd have to sprint down the stairs, which I'm not very good at because of all the donuts. And I would sprint down the stairs and pick the cat up uh, and run outside with him and put him down. And of course... Um, he had absolutely no fucking idea what had happened. It was like the hands of God had lifted him out of the place that he knew that he was, the nice-smelling living room, and just put him down uh, in the garden where everything was weird. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it is very sad, and he just walks about bumping into things and pissing now. Um, and I'm sure he's not very long for the world, but um, uh, it was just kind of heartbreakingly funny um, to have to run from various ends of our house to go and get him um, and, and, and uh, bring him into the garden for that period of time. Um, and, and that's it. That's all I have to say. A, a thing about my cat. Um, God, okay. Nothing about Viagra, just about the cat. Um, thank God. Okay, uh, thanks very much. And um, yeah. You can. Lauren Stone, everybody. Okay, well, so, right, um, our next performer uh, is, we're, we're going to be moving some stuff around now, it's exciting. Uh, we're, we're, yeah, our next performer, she has an excellent uh, show called Bongolicious at five o'clock at Just the Tonic at the Mash House. Her, and her name is Jambi McGrath! You're going to hold it? Or you... Thank you. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. I'm from Africa. No, that's not the tragedy. Uh, <laughs> I know looking at me, you couldn't tell because they make us look so thin in those commercials, don't they? Oh my God, that's not necessary. But uh, are you guys into politics, huh? No, no, that, that's, that, that's the right answer. Uh, you shouldn't be into politics because politicians have an answer to everything, don't they? You ask a politician, hey, why were you waterboarding those people? They'll turn around and say, that was a christening, madam. <laughs> yeah? But you know what? Africa gets such a bad press, and we've got so much going for us. We've got the animals, many of them dictators. And no one's killing them because there's no oil. Actually, I can't have a go at unscrupulous people because my uncle is one of them. He fiddles expenses, avoids taxes, drives around in a street full of potholes. He's the MP for Brixton. <laughs> Actually, I tell a lie. There is a bit of oil in Nigeria, but that belongs to their president. Did you know Nigeria's president has got good luck? <laughs> David Cameron should just call himself Fuck You. <laughs> and Osborne in the ass. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, so guys, I, uh, I've started living in the UK, and I, since being here, I'm becoming a little bit more British. I say British things like, I beg your pardon before I push a lady off her seat. <laughs> it's great, it's great. But uh, I was hanging out with my friends in London, chilling out, doing girl things like twerking. And then my father had to ruin it for me by dying. It's okay, <laughs> that's all right. So I get onto the next flight to Kenya because that's where I'm from. 
And uh, I took Kenya Airways, and Kenya Airways is a little bit like British Airways, but with a few more options, like landing. <laughs> so, so I get to Kenya to mourn the loss of my father, but then also to find closure. And someone had to ruin it for me by saying something at the funeral that got me onto the path that I find myself in today. So consider this. The year is 1885 Berlin. A few aristocratic men are gathered around the table discussing the burning issues of the day. No, not European women's voting rights or the prevalence of gout amongst the privileged, but something much more fundamental. The modernization of Africa. <laughs> they shouldn't have. <laughs> no, really, they shouldn't have. And when was the last time you put aristocratic middle-aged men in the same category as change and forward thinking? Never. Just visit the House of Lords. So anyway, sat round the table, I'll move away so you can see, sat round this big table was Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Spain having a siesta. <laughs> Belgium, no one quite knows the face of Belgium, nor Portugal. And on the wall, they have a big map of Africa and with a pen, they literally drew borders, dissecting whole kingdoms, determining the future of Africans for centuries to come. And what's ironic is that now Africans are more likely to have a big map of Europe determining on which borders to cross. <laughs> but at the time, none of these guys had ever been to Africa. This is going to be very, very smooth uh, because I'm trying to do everything at once. But none of these guys had ever been to Africa. To them, we really want nothing but just jungle savages. <laughs> jungle axing. <laughs> uh, so it was uh, that France took the western part of Africa, the Britain took the middle strip of Africa, the Belgium took the center, always ruling from the middle. And at the time when Belgium took the Congo, it was under the kingship of King Leopold II, a nutcase who managed to kill half of the population in seven years. Now that's careless. He is also the guy that introduced the chopping of the hands for the wakshai. Good job he's not here, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Germany took the three countries when measured on the map equals to an isosceles triangle. Talk about Aino. <laughs> Italy took the horn of Africa, presumably to blow for their bunga bunga parties. <laughs> and when Spain woke up from their siesta, that was all that was left. <laughs> and no one, no one wanted Ethiopia. <laughs> I can't think it was worse to be colonized and to be ignored. <laughs> uh, so it was that Britain sent a guy to go to Kenya to pave the way for colonialization. And this guy, Frederick Lugert, went to my village, spoke to the chief and said, hello there. My name is Lugard. Would you like to be a friend of the British? The chief Waiyaki said, yes. I would like to be a friend of the British. In that case, Waiyaki, could you sign here, please? And he signed without reading the terms and conditions. And so it was that Kenya was declared a British protectorate 
1895 by Queen Victoria. And soon after, the work began to build the East African Railway from the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa all the way to the source of the Nile. And this was nicknamed the Lunatic Express. It was a little bit like HS2, controversial. <laughs> Massively over budget, chaotic, nobody knew what they wanted it to do. But these guys didn't consult us on our railway building expertise. I can't think why. <laughs> they outsourced to India. But at the time when you outsourced to India, the Indians came to you. 30,000 of them. Now, had they consulted us on our local knowledge, we could have told them where the man-eating beasts were. And I'm not talking about Katie Price. <laughs> I am talking about the man-eating lions of Savo. And these were two men, menless male lions that had developed a taste for blood and always oh, went for the jugular. A little bit like Cameron and Osborne. <laughs> and so it was that a quarter of those Indians were killed by the lions, disease, and an inferiority complex. Round about the same time, they sent a guy called Sir Charles Elliot to assess the territory and the people. His assessment of the territory was that the central province of Kenya, with its bright red soils and high rainfall, was perfect for British habitation. His assessment of the people was that Africans were black. Correction, I would say 50 shades of brown. <laughs> His other assessment was that Africans were lacking in every way. Until one of the African men dropped his trousers, the whole place went dark. <laughs> he called it the dark continent. And so with this lush green vegetation, he renamed the central province of Kenya to the White Highlands. I am beginning to question this man's assessment capabilities. He should have been working for Ofsted. <laughs> And so now there was the White Highlands, but no white people to live in it. So they placed adverts in London, advertising cheap land and cheap labor. The respondents, old Etonians. And you know what fun those boys can be, don't me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was others too from Harrow, another public school, Oxbridge educated, aristocrats dipped in blue blood and syphilis. <laughs> they placed adverts too in, his, in South Africa. The respondents, just the racist, and off to the new frontier. And now, we had white people for the White Highlands. But there was a tiny little problem. The Kikuyu farmers that already lived there and had done so for centuries. And if you know anything about the Kikuyu, they're industrious agriculturalists who are renowned for their business acumen and their love of money. It is said that if you want to spot a kiku, you drop a coin, and they all turn round. But getting rid of them was easy. They would turn up, touch the village. The panicked villagers would be hoarded into a lorry, and boom, expelled into some desolate land surrounded by barbed wire called the native reserves. What could go wrong? But life was beautiful for the white settlers who settled in rather nicely with wife swapping and swinging. <laughs> they had massive orgies. They even created their own Moulin Rouge. They drank champagne and pink gin for breakfast. They played cards all day. They danced all night, woke up in the morning with dick in one's mouth. <laughs> and that was just their horses. <laughs> they had drugs dropped from aeroplanes. They turned the central province of Kenya into one huge hedonistic haven of sex, drugs, and oppressor native. 
Even Satan in hell was going, Jesus! <laughs> so, you can imagine the type of decisions one would make for the natives in between shagging and snotting coke. <sighs> hey, Giles! <laughs> Giles! <laughs> Charles, there you are. <laughs> Charles, uh, Daddy refuses to send any more money. How do you suggest we're going to pay for all this opulence? I apologize. <laughs> Don't you worry, Monty, old chap. Just tax the natives. You know, like poll tax. And you know what a bit of pilda's going to turn out to be in Scotland? Might even cause a referendum. <laughs> But hey, that is in the future. And so, the natives had no permission to leave their enclosures without a special permit. They had to wear an ID around their necks on a made of frames with their names and thumbprint on it. They had to carry their employment records at all times just in case they were stopped and searched. They had to pay not one but two types of taxes, hard tax and poll tax. Equivalent to two months wages, but no way of earning money. There was no jobs and there was no Polish people to blame. And similar to the American Whip Amendment, to the American Fifth Amendment, the white settlers had the Whip Amendment, which gave them the right to brandish a whip at all times just in case an African got out of line. And then the decision was made to clear all food crops from the central province of Kenya to make way for important crops like uh, tobacco and coffee, all the essentials for after shagging. And so the native reserves became very overcrowded. The Kikuyu became impoverished. They became malnourished. And now relied on the handouts from the Red Cross. And those are the images that have come to define Africa. But trouble was brewing. And that is where I'm going to end it. If you want to see more, come and see the rest of it. It is at the Just the Tonic Marsh House. Are you going to cry? Are you going to laugh? I hope you do come. Good night. Jambi McGrath. Welcome our next performer. So uh, his show, called Pornography and Heartache, uh, is on here in this very room at 5.10pm every day from the 2nd to the 12th, uh, the 14th to the 19th, and the 11th to the 24th of August. So put your hands together for David Lee Morgan! The simpler version of that is I'm here every day until the 24th, except for the last two Wednesdays. That might be easier to remember. Um, but I'm not going to do a show from... from uh, oh, here's the leaflet. I'll hand them out at the end. But I'm not going to do a poem from the show. I'm going to do two poems uh, from areas where there's like tragedy for real happening right now, uh, the Congo and Palestine. And the first I'm going to do is from the Congo... You may know that somewhere between 6 and 10 million people have died in the Congo in the last decade or so in the uh, drive for uh, coltan, tantalan, tungsten, tin, and gold, and a few other commodities, but particularly coltan and tantalan because they're used in iPhones and they're used in mobile phones. Um, that's not the first Holocaust in the Congo area. Uh, it's the third. 
the first was the slave trade, the second was the, the, the drive for ivory and, and rubber. And at that time, the Congo was owned by Leopold, and that's what this first poem is about. The Congo Free State, 1885 to 1908. We are the hands that hold nothing. We are the hands strung on a string. We are the hands counted in bullets, body and bloodless bone and skin. We are the hands. It's not cruelty, it's logic, simple logic. Guns do not kill people, bullets kill people. We give you guns for killing Africans, not white people. So here's the deal. You fire a bullet, you give me a hand. You hit the target, you cut off a hand. You fire and miss, you cut off a hand, any hand, so long as it's African. This is how the rubber is harvested. You take a knife and cut into the bark. Cut into the limb and the tree weeps. Cut into the root and it drowns in tears. You smear the tears onto your body. The tears dry into a second skin. When we rip skin from skin, you howl in agony. It's not cruelty, it's accounting. There were too many bullets and never enough hands, so they became valuable. And one severed hand is pretty much like any other, so they became exchangeable. They functioned as currency. In other words, hands were money. Slavery, ivory, rubber, and gold. Look at the photos from the days of old when the Congo was owned by Leopold. Look at the villagers lined up in rows. Look at the stump at the end of the wrist. Nothing but air where the blade is kissed. Not even girls and boys were missed. Cold tan tannel and tungsten tin. I am the plague the wind blew in. The warrior leaders and the warrior peoples Mulamba, Kandalo, Yamba Yamba, Kimpuki, Nzanzu, Mulumeneama, the Boa and the Buja, the Yaka and the Chakwa, the Sangha in the caves of Shamakale. We blocked up the last cave and starved you for months, but you wouldn't give up. We set fire to the mouth of the cave. Still, you wouldn't surrender. You never surrendered. So what? I am the hand that grows back, fist fingers blossoming around your throat. Blood money coursing through my veins. Blood money coursing through my veins. I am the steamboat and the banknote, the machine gun and the hedge fund. I am the world wide web of profit and loss, supply and demand. If you want me dead, don't cut off my hand. Cut off my head. We are the hands that hold nothing. We are the hands strung on a string. We are the hands counted in bullets, body and bloodless, bone and skin. We have no teeth, no lips, no tongue, but we speak truth. We are the bulletproof. Second poem. As you can guess, my, the show I'm doing, Pornography and Heartbreak, is not stand-up comedy. <laughs> Um, I actually had to chuck out half the audience yesterday because they came thinking I was going to do smutty jokes about pornography. Um, okay, this one is, is uh, called Israel, and I don't think it needs an introduction. So, um, Well, yeah, I, I wanted to say one thing. I'm very pro-Palestinian and anti-Zionist and against the state of Israel and very much not anti-Semitic. And... I think there's a danger of anti-Semitism rising up again. It's a great excuse to blame Jewish bankers rather than capitalism. And, and, and I hope this poem doesn't contribute to that. If you think it does, tell me afterwards. Israel. 
Veni, veni, Emmanuel, Captivum salvet Israel. It's not a religion, Moshe told me. It's a contract. That's what made the Holocaust so hard to understand. God broke the contract. I read about the bomb blast that I read about the bomb blast twisted wheelchair and thought of long dead Mo rolling down the hospital corridor, waving his missing leg and breathing on one lung. Son of a rabbi, son of a rabbi's son, but you went your own way. Big Mo with the little cigars. How God punished you for that. Jeff and stage crew working on the lights. My buddy Pat yelled down, Hey, Jeff, why don't you wet your finger and stick it in the socket? Then I could feel just like Hitler frying another Jew. And you called back, Hey, pass me another box of nails. The fucker keeps moving his arm. But you were outnumbered, the only Jewish kid in a hundred miles. Sherman, who practically lived at Hillel House, so studious, so principled, so concerned when neither me nor Chris could speak a word, we were too stoned, our acid thoughts flying so much higher than our two solid tongues. When I finally got out one word, okay, you looked so relieved I felt bathed in an almost mother love. Bagels. How the room roared because everyone in the cafeteria had taken a deep breath at the same time just as I blurted out over the silence, what's a bagel? How I was always threatening to buy a beanie with a propeller on it. Late at night in New York City, after we did the shake, rattle, and roll every time someone read out the name of Haman, Mo and I arm in arm, skipping down the streets of the village, singing, Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail, hippity-hoppity, Easter's on its way. Chapter 2. Golden-tongued Robbie Stern at the head of the march, tall and strong and confident, with a deep bass voice leading us in the Black Panther chant, Power! Power, power to the people, power to the people, the people's power, the people's power, getting stronger by the hour, getting stronger by the hour. Danny the Red outside the shipyards with the Mayday leaflets. You trip over a railroad tie and the fascists close in. I come in between, my hands balled into fists, and they stop, confused. Isn't he one of us? Now I will make my claim. You will not believe but I grew up without having the least scrap of anti-Jewish prejudice. You were the heroes of Exodus in the Warsaw Ghetto. You fought the Nazi war machine with sticks and homemade bombs. You were Paul Newman. You were Anne Frank. To hate you in any way would have been to put on the most evil uniform in history. And as I became a man and learned the true story of my race, I came to see that Hitler had good reason to fear you. You were there, everywhere, in science, in the arts, but most of all, in every fight against injustice. You had your criminals and monsters, but you, more than any other people, were the conscience of our planet. Jews taught me to hate racism. Jews taught me to love the Vietnamese. Jews taught me to hate Israel and love Palestine. Jews taught me that. I judge Israel with their eyes. Blame it on the Nazis. Blame it on the ovens that burned even the survivors. Palestinians are the second victims. Jews, again, the third. It's like child abuse, we tell ourselves, trying to make sense of the atrocities that leap out of the front page every morning. How can this be? Not you, not you, Israel. 
Nothing makes me hate my own country more than what it has done to you, turned you into its whore, armed you and set you loose among its enemies, psychotic, warped, and twisted child abuser, grown up out of your own terrible abuse, but no frail and broken-hearted innocent, no, strong, with a heart of stone, nourished on the red, white, and blue vein. I stare with hatred into the whorehouse window at the jewel-encrusted pimp's hand that caresses your blood-stained cheeks. I hear the wail of dying children. Your laughter freezes my heart, the Midas touch. I loved you so much. What if you were living in a science fiction world and your skies were filled with alien machines? If alien beings ruled the earth? What if when you fought back with sticks and stones, the machines would slaughter you? But when you hid, they would come for your children. What if you were living in a science fiction world with alien beings and their killing machines and the only possibility of resistance, the only means of causing pain for pain? What if the only aliens you could touch were the alien children? And what if the alien children were as innocent and sweet as your own? So at Stand Up Tragedy, we, uh, we like to, to, as I uh, may have said or may not have said, to, to cry until we laugh and laugh until we cry. And I like to mix up the bill. So don't worry, the next person's a comedian. Um, but that said, uh, that's, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's always an interesting moment to change these tones from different places. So I'm going to do a little bit more waffling to make us feel a bit more comfortable with that, obviously. I think this is like the, uh, almost, this is the second most awkward time that I've ever brought on a comedian to, the, to a stand-up tra- tragedy stage. The first one was at the Christmas show when uh, a, uh, Richard Tyrone Jones, who you can see at the, the fringe all over the place, uh, he, uh, he just told a story about his uh, father... Uh, committing suicide at Christmas and then I brought on Beck Hill to do some comedy and poor old Beck Hill and now poor old somebody else so the next person who's going to come onto the stage uh, also has a, has a bad voice so they're really going to be battling so you're going to have to laugh a lot for them to help them through this moment out of sympathy if nothing else that's how, that's how you like like a laugh out of sympathy that's always good uh, so his show is called Unicornocopia. Uh, it's at the Globe Bar. Well, you, your, your show title got to laugh. That's always good. Uh, and, f- and it's at 4:45. It's on at various dates, but I'm getting the idea that it's a bit weird to say those dates. So I've, I've learned. I'm learning. I'm learning. Was it Mr. Wednesdays or something? Which one? Any day that isn't a Wednesday. There we go. Fuck Wednesdays. There we go. He's already started. He's an amazing person. Put your hands together for James Ross. Uh, Dave, Dave, you, you dropped uh, you dropped your poison chalice. There you go. That's great. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is James Ross, and I am the answer to the question: What would it look like if they smushed together all four members of Queen onto one face? Um, continuing the. Uh, <laughs> The Holocaust theme is a great opener for comedy. It's fine. Um, you know, um, I'm actually I'm descended um, from Holocaust victims. This is the worst start to a stand-up set ever. 
Um, but uh, yeah, um, my uh, granddad was um, handed out of Poland uh, in the uh, late thirties and settled over here, uh, which is why I now have this uh, powerful leonine mane and the nickname Jufasa. Totally um, appropriate. That's fine. Um, this is going to be quite husky, ladies and gentlemen, because in a special tragic moment, and I did it entirely because I was booked in for this set. Uh, the three weeks of the year that I really look forward to, that I work my incredibly tedious and horrendous uh, day job uh, to fund and promote. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't normally I managed to lose my voice about a fortnight in uh, this year. I thought, why not? Why not? I'll, I'll do it a bit special. Or I'll do it a week in advance. That'll be fine. Be great. Just get it in early. That'll be nice. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do um, a quick sort of like a, a little bit of a true story uh, from my life that is a little bit tragic. And then I'm going to do a bit of material which is deliberately amusing uh, rather than just being, you know, uh, suffused with the pathos of my suffering. Um, so that'll be jolly. Um, yes. So there's a, a saying that, you know, every man has his price. Um, and I happen to know more or less what mine is. Um, now, a few years ago, um, I was uh, going out with a young lady. Um, and uh, when, when we met, I had no idea um, that her family was impossibly rich, like ridiculously rich. I just thought, oh, she seems nice. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, maybe we, we could uh, hold her hands. Uh, maybe we could sort of stroke each other's faces. Maybe we could do a bit of like that sort of, you know, uh, platonic and then romantic nuzzling. That'd be nice. Uh, but like two ponies confusing the other pony for our nose bags. Uh, and it'll be lovely. Um, but uh, I discovered, like I say, impossibly rich. Um, and her parents were not, not the just sort of like, oh, you happen to have some money. Uh, they're like, you know, properly sort of, Croesus, nah, Midas, I'd love to meet you. Shall we marry? Yes. Shall we produce children? Yes. This is this child. And she was very lovely. And her dad was this big noise in commercial property speculation. And if you don't know what that is, I can shorthand that to the problem. And her mum was retired, uh, but uh, she was a senior civil servant under Margaret Thatcher. And uh, quite, quite, quite. I'm quite left-wing, ladies and gentlemen. Like, I'm not the sort of, you know, the, the modern excuse for left-wing, which is the sort of like, oh, well, mm, consumer choice is good. And oh, quite in favor of ethical shopping. Gay marriage is probably a good idea. Like, I'm the proper sort of classical left-wing. Like, if I tell you I'm going to treat you like a princess, it means I'm going to have your family murdered in a railway siding east of Moscow and your land's expropriated in the name of the people. Like, it's that... Too soon? I don't know. Topical humor for 1919. Um, and I, when, I, when I went to the house, and I say house, I do sort of mean mansion in Dulwich. Um, I kind of went up the stairs, and there was, there was this huge picture blown up on the wall of, um, of Margaret Thatcher holding the infant my girlfriend, and my penis retracted into my thorax. I was oh my God. It was terrifying. Um, and so... This is, this is the first time that I'd met uh, these parents. Um, and uh, the mother... Um, like, I, at the time, I worked um, night shifts because um, I, I fear the daylight. Um, and I was, it was in the middle of summer, and I don't do well in the heat. I was a bit, uh, a bit scruffy. I'm quite scruffy anyway. I mean, look at this now. I mean, this is in an age before I discovered the existence of the waistcoat. And uh, lady, a gentleman in particular, uh, the waistcoat is the easiest way of soliciting the reaction. Oh, you've made an effort in like two minutes. It's, it's kind of the main equivalent of eyeliner. Just do it. It's a lovely thing. You look like a snooker player, but it's fine. And um, uh, da -da -da. so, yeah, so she was seeing me, and, you know, she didn't 
care that I was, you know, a terribly well-spoken and well-brought-up young man who was, you know, kind to the servants and played the pianoforte and had an estate worth 20,000 euro to Pemberley or whatever. And she just thought, like, oh, what is this scrubby ape? She did not even slightly sound like that. Um, and uh, so she sort of took a bit of dislike to me. Um, and so the, the relationship kind of, you know, uh, potted on. Um, and it, it eventually kind of, you know, um, I found out a little bit later that her mum had been taking her on a little sort of, you know, just a, a little shopping trip. It's fine. Just pop down the shops. Uh, I'll buy myself something nice, something glitzy. Uh, you know, something. That dress. Oh, no, the, the one made of caviar. Yeah, it's an unusual choice of fabric, but fine. Do it. Uh, I'll buy the thing and have a lovely thing. And here's a small diamond yacht. That's the thing. That's the thing. Oh, and then later at the coffee, like, mm, well, that James, he's a bit scruffy, isn't he? Would you like to maybe break up with him? I like, no, no. She stood up for true, well, not love, but, you know, impossible affection. Um, and said, no, no, I will stand by my man, and etc. And a few months after that, the relationship um, kind of uh, parted out uh, a little bit. Because, you know, just fundamentally incompatible people. She's absolutely lovely, as uh, with the chap now. They've been happy for many years. Um, hooray for them. Um, but um, I found out afterwards um, that um, her father um, had offered her, as a price of breaking up with me, a flat. A flat in central London. A flat worth £400,000 in zone one. And... And she didn't kind of break up with me because of that, but she found, um, like, after we had split up, her parents were under the impression that that was why. And so they just gave her this flat. (laughs) So that is my price. And I would like to point out, ladies and gentlemen, that the recent spike in house price inflation in London means I'm worth a good six to seven hundred thousand pounds now. And that is going (laughs) to. What I'm saying is that if you're you're thinking of splitting me anytime soon, like, consult your Russian oligarchs before you do it, because they're really going to be the determinants of that sort of thing. Um, I will now run on to some material which I quite like. This is is my favourite bit from um, my show. Uh, Unicornicopia, 1645, Globe, not Wednesdays. Bring a friend. Uh, If you run any coach parties, bring the coach party. It's great. We'll squeeze you in. Um, We'll stack you if necessary. Hopefully your coach party tessellates. And... um, the whole point of my show is that, you know, um, the kind of the message is don't go chasing the unicorn. Appreciate the things that you kind of have around you and celebrate the everyday. Um, so I've kind of written this bit kind of with that in mind. Because, um, like, the whole, like, spate of superhero movies recently, like, I find the whole superhero thing, like, a bit alienating. Like, it's a bit unrelatable because of all the superpowers. Like, it's just a, a necessary step away from reality and away from the everyday lived experience of you and I. Um, so with that in mind, um, you know, I, I mean, this is the thing. Like, even superheroes who don't have, like, superpowers, superpowers, like Batman... Batman has still got the superpower of being enormously rich um, and convincing the world that he is an impossibly right wing even though his only real identifiable hobby is beating up the charismatically dressed mentally ill as as Cameron's Gotham what are you going to do but um, you know with that in mind ladies and gentlemen I've created uh, a a new superhero Uh, a superhero for you superhero for I superhero for the common man Um, this is not uh, Spider-Man bitten by a radioactive spider this is not Superman bitten by a radioactive soup (laughs) My dad loves that joke. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Man Man. Bitten by a radioactive man, he has all the powers of a man. He has the strength of one man. He is faster than a speeding man, provided the man in question is travelling at slightly below the average speed of a man. He possesses fantastic mental powers. He can read your mind if you use your mind to speak the words that are in your mind. His his fists, deadly weapons, when they have guns in them. He can walk... He can walk through walls, provided there is a door in those walls. He commands the loyalty of sea creatures. Impotently, they don't listen. He has X-ray vision in the hospital where he works as a radiographer. He flies at the speed of a Boeing 747 because he takes a lot of foreign holidays and doesn't give a shit about his carbon footprint. 
<laughs> he can move objects with the power of his mind, using the fearsome power of the motor cortex, impulses of electrical energy, coruscated down his arms, into his hands, causing them to move those objects. Madman psychic? Whoa, man. Bitten by a radioactive woman? He has all the powers of a woman. He has the strength of one woman. He is faster than a speeding woman, for the woman in question is traveling at slightly below the average speed of a woman. Essentially, he is exactly the same as man man in all respects, except he's paid 18% less for the same work, and his internal monologues pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> Everyone who laughed at that joke is my favorite. Um, man man's only weaknesses bullets, fire, drowning, poison, heart failure, renal failure, pancreatic failure, seatbelt failure. Carcinogens, car accidents, carpal tunnel syndrome, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, carbon trioxide. Trying to get free things out of any machines by stuffing his hand and pulling the whole thing down and having squash him to death. Like a phone booth, fucking an overripe watermelon to death with its face. Falling from great heights, falling from intermediate heights, falling awkwardly from small heights. <laughs> Electrocution, asphyxiation, dehydration, malnutrition, malaria, spinning a pint in a Glasgow pub, hypothermia, hyperthermia, hyperglycemia, hyponatremia, bleeding his own hype, anaphylactic shock, anaphylactic surprise of experience near a steep drop without a safety rail, the anaphylactic sundae, the world's most uh, allergenic ice cream, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, typing diabetes far, far too many times over 40 long, unappreciated years as part of menial office-based service sector job, leading to depression and suicide, leaving behind... Uh, Wasted life, a broken marriage, two spoiled and hateful children, a tragic monument to late capitalism's infinite potential to wring any possible meaning out of life and leave its victims pathetic, desiccated husks. Chlorine poisoning, mercury poisoning, lead poisoning, pew pew, Bonnie McGrew, Cuthbert Dibble and Grub, where pew pew, Bonnie McGrew, Cuthbert Dibble and Grub are all furious bears. Bombs, fear itself and global warming. Wake up, people, the world is burning. I'll see you all at Globe Bar, uh, 1645, uh, 1645. Thank you very much and good night. Thank you very much, James Ross, everybody. A man who I gave a poison chalice to, but he drunk it down very well. So, we come to the end of the tragedy. The tragedy is now over. I have my dramatic music today. It wasn't there yesterday. I feel much better now. So, you can find us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy, and you can find us on, uh, on Facebook, and we're at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. Today is part of the free fringe, so it's a free show to come in, but it's not free for us to put on, and it's cost me a lot of money, and I'm basically gambling my life. I lost my job earlier this year. I basically, basically, my life is becoming more and more of a tragedy the more I do this show, and you, you people, you can help to solve that a little bit by putting a little bit of money into the hat as you go out. Uh, in exchange for that, we'll give you party poppers with tragic stories. We'll give you tragic scent or not, depending on your preference. And we've got a different lineup here every night, so please come back and see a different, different flavour of tragedy. I never know how the mix will turn out, and it, it, it can turn out very differently different nights. Uh, and tonight was an interesting night, and uh, that's always good. I like interestingness in my life. So that's, it is time to go. I'm very bad at endings. I just basically talk, you know. Uh, you could clap, and then that's basically, yes, an excellent thing. So now the tragedy is over, but you can see it live at 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth every day until the 24th for free. It's a free show, free to get in, but we would like you to contribute on the way out. You can find us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. You can like us or friend us on Facebook and you can spread the word in every way you can. Subscribe to us on iTunes, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, SoundCloud, Anywhere that podcasts like to hang out on the internet, you will find us there. This podcast was recorded by 
by Stephen Harvey and it was put together by me. The outro song was produced by George Brufton and our regular theme bed was written by Samuel Tragedy is over.